Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. My guest coming up, Casey Chalk, has penned De Persecuted, a breathtaking book that tells the real-life stories of brave Christians who are suffering intimidation, oppression, and violence right now as they resolutely live out their faith in Muslim lands. I think in many ways it's grim because um, the governments of these countries, you know, like as I mentioned, it's, it's the Islam is written into the law and the law itself is used as a coercive tool against these Christian populations. Now that said, there are many things that uh, Christians in the West and, uh, and even non-Christians who care about the plight of people who are suffering from this crisis, things they can do. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. Well, I hope you're all doing well. You're going to love my guest coming up, so stay with us. Casey Chalk is a contributing editor at the New Oxford Review, a senior contributor for The Federalist, and a frequent contributor to The American Conservative and Crisis magazine. We'll talk about extremist ideologies and dig deep into his new book, The Persecuted about how Christians in Muslim lands are suffering oppression and violence as they live out their faith. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Casey Chalk, welcome to my show. Uh, Pleasure to be with you today. You know, I think we're going to get along very well. I read that some years ago, you went to a Chieftains concert, uh, which featured the late Paddy Maloney, rest in peace. He just passed away. And then some years later, 20 years later, I believe it was, at the same venue or near or around, you proposed to your wife. Is that all correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, when I was a little kid running around after a Chieftains concert at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., claiming it was the happiest day of my life. And then, yeah, about 20 years later, uh, same concert or very similar one at the Kennedy Center is where I proposed to my wife. So, of course, that one uh, takes the cake for happiest day of my life. That's beautiful. I've heard the Chieftains in concert quite a few times. They're going to miss Patty Maloney. People see my Irish flag and the American flag behind me and think, am I in Ireland in Cork or somewhere? But I'm actually in the New York metropolitan area. I just fly the flag proudly, but I'm an American citizen first and foremost, obviously, but proud of my Irish uh, background. I grew up in Ireland. And you have an interesting story here. You've studied the Muslim world, uh, that's a tough one. And you spent some time abroad and ultimately it culminated in your new book, The Persecuted. Could you take us through that sort of a, what took you abroad and what did you witness? Uh, some of the details are horrific. Sure, I'd be happy to do it. So 
Uh, my wife and I lived in Bangkok, Thailand for three years from 2014 to 2017. Um, and I had prior experience at Department of Defense working in Afghanistan. So I've spent a lot of time uh, in the, working in the Muslim world, studying uh, the Muslim faith, uh, working alongside Muslims. When we moved to Thailand, Thailand uh, uh, is not a majority Muslim country. There is a small uh, Muslim minority in the southernmost provinces of the country. It's predominantly Buddhist, but there is a very large asylum seeker crisis in uh, Bangkok, Thailand, the largest city. Many of uh, these asylum seekers come from the Muslim world, places like Pakistan, uh, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, um, and, uh, and they're Christians, in many cases, who have fled their home countries because of persecution at the hands of Muslim extremists. So my wife and I got to know many of these families through our local church in Bangkok, and uh, I interviewed many of them. I wrote articles about many of their stories uh, for a number of different Catholic, Christian, conservative publications over the years. The Persecuted is a consolidation of uh, many of those articles and stories, and then uh, stepping back a little bit to talk more broadly about uh, Islam and uh, and, it, and its role in persecution of Christian communities around the world. Wow. So, I mean, the title itself is, um, I guess, provocative when read in context with the subhead, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands. People will take from that whatever they wish, but it sort of suggests that we have a problem here um, and can Muslims and Christians get along? Is there something we have to fear here? Can you help me out on that and reassure us some way? Sure. So the problem of the persecution of Christians in Muslim countries and by Muslim people uh, traces all the way back to the earliest history of the Islamic faith. Islam spread uh, by violence, it, it very much um, a, as a political and a religious institution uh, through Mohammed throughout the Middle East. Um, many folks don't realize that much of what we now view as the Muslim world and has been the Muslim world for um, more than a millennia uh, was actually originally predominantly Christian. Um, and so within the first 100, 150 years after uh, the birth of Islam uh, in the 7th and 8th centuries, uh, a majority of the Christians in the world were actually living in Muslim lands. And uh, over time, those Christian communities um, decreased in size uh, via all kinds of um, implicit and explicit coercive measures um, to, the, to the point where, you know, more than a thousand years removed from the birth of Islam, the Christian communities in many of these places are very small, they're very vulnerable, and uh, oftentimes uh, at the um, they're, they're harassed and, uh, and persecuted by more uh, extremist brands of Islam. Well, I mean, is coexistence a pipe dream? Is it possible? Uh, I mean, it seems to me it is, and we should look at that. Uh, there's a lot of Muslims now settled and living in the West, in America, in Europe. Um, and if there's going to be some kind of simmering conflict, we have trouble ahead. Yeah, I do think that coexistence is possible. As I've mentioned, I've worked very closely along uh, alongside many Muslims. I, I count Muslims as, as my friends. Um, but that said, I do think that many Muslims and, and certainly Muslim leaders, they need to be willing to take an honest look 
at what the relationship between Islam and Christianity looks like, especially in the countries where Islam is the dominant faith. Many of these countries in the Middle East, North Africa, even into Southeast Asia, uh, identify explicitly as Muslim nations. It's written into the laws, um, and that has many effects on um, minority religious populations. Christians, of course, but even Hindus, Sikhs, and and other religious communities. In many of these countries, it's impossible uh, to convert to another religion if you're Muslim. Um, There are uh, all kinds of pressures put upon Christian communities. In many places, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to build new churches, if not even renovate the ones you have. Um, Persecution of Christians is oftentimes not investigated uh, by local authorities. Um, so, and especially that's the case where Pakistan, which is where, uh, most of my book, the persecuted, uh, focuses its attention. Yeah. Well, let, let's just look at some of the numbers here. They're interesting. As of 2017, there are about 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. That's according to the Pew Research Center. And they make up nearly one fourth of the world's population making Islam the world's second largest religion after Christianity. Within the second half of the century, Muslims are expected to become the world's largest religious group just based on faster birth rates versus uh, Christian uh, families. There's a, a decline in birth rate among Christian population. We, we see that in the West. Um, in North America, there are over 3.4, nearly 3.5 million Muslim. So it's it's small relative to the overall population uh, here in America. But most Muslims in the West, it seems to me, are pretty quite secular. I, I'm not um, familiar enough with the data to speak to that, but I would say that certainly most of the Muslims that I know and I've worked with in the West, like the United States, um, they're certainly more inclined towards uh, the sort of liberal ideas that America has espoused since the beginning, religious freedom, freedom of speech, these sorts of things. Um, so in that respect, uh, many Muslims in the West are different than uh, the ideologies of the countries from which they originate, where freedom of speech and freedom of religion are not uh, upheld with the same um, level of intensity uh, as they are in the United States and other Western countries. Okay, so 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 again, just to make it very clear, this is not an attack on our Muslim neighbors and friends. It's more the ideology and the extremism that has wrought a lot of problems in the world. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, that that's right. So my focus is on many of the extremist brands of Islam that have become more popular, both in countries like Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, uh, Indonesia. Um, but also are becoming increasingly more popular in the West. I think for similar reasons as to why we're seeing um, even non-Muslims commit acts of terror uh, and violence, right? When we look at many of the people involved in shootings, whether they are Muslim or non-Muslim in the West, many of them are disaffected, isolated. They're suffering from the same sorts of uh, atomizing effects that are happening in our culture as we become um, yeah, more separated from one another, less dependent on families and communities. Yeah, just sort of a breakdown. Talking about coexistence, you had a brief reference to Fulton Sheen at the early part of your book. Not not really about uh, the topic you were covering, but, but the aesthetics of the local church when you were overseas. It was kind of an interesting observation. But it was Fulton Sheen sort of also brought up the idea of potential coexistence between Muslims and Christians, Catholics, because of a shared belief in the Blessed Mother 
Now, that might be a stretch, but there are some common shared beliefs. We, we know Muslims, some of them uh, go to Fatima on, a, as, on pilgrimage. I find that always fascinating. I mean, are any of those things could bring us together? Or again, is that just all a far-fetched idea? Ideology and what the Islam teaches is certainly not compatible with Christianity and Catholicism, and they are, at, and are sharply at odds. I think that the the starting point for any kind of conversation um, that is going to be charitable, we have to find common ground, um, whether we're talking about um, Christ, inter-Christian ecumenical dialogue or between different faiths, whether we're talking about Islam or Buddhism or anything else. So yeah, of course, I think that Christians should always look for the commonalities and then start to you know evaluate and dissect what the differences are. But I, yeah, I think we certainly should try to emphasize the places where we we have shared beliefs. One anecdote I like to share, this is a, from a friend of mine who um, is an American, but has uh, lived and served in a, a monastery in Syria, including at the height of the uh, Syrian civil war several years ago. And he related to me an anecdote about how even in, in Syria, the, the Muslim women, um, when they really want their prayers answered, they'll go to the Marian shrines, because there's this sense that Mary has uh, a, a certain um, power in her prayers and in, in her intercessory prayers that, uh, that that their own religious tradition lacks. That's just amazing. Uh, let's look at some other uh, statistics. About uh, 5,000 Christians were killed last year because of their faith, and that's a staggering 60% increase from the previous year. About 260 million Christians worldwide are facing persecution. It's jaw-dropping. Why this surge in this persecution? Is it kind of be laid completely at the feet of extremist Muslims and Islam? Uh, probably most of it, yes. Um, it takes many forms. I think for listeners, it would be valuable too to kind of um, dissect what we mean by persecution. So in places like Pakistan, of course, there's the, like you mentioned, John, the very violent examples of Christians who are actually killed for their faith. Um, but it can it can take forms as simple as being harassed when they're going to work, um, being denied jobs um, and various professional opportunities. In Pakistan and other countries, this, this is increasingly common where uh, Christian girls or young women will be abducted and married to Muslim men. And uh, that and it's all done um, with the official uh, endorsement of a Muslim cleric. And a lot of these Muslim countries will recognize that. And it becomes impossible for these Christian families to get uh, their 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 daughters um, or or young women back. Um, so, but yes to your question, I think that Islam is probably the most driving factor for the persecution of Christians. And much of this, ha- there's a long story behind this. Um, we can go we can go back to the 1970s and 80s with the rise of more extremist forms of Islam in Saudi Arabia and India, namely the Wahhabi and Diobandi schools. The Saudi Arabian government, which folks know is very wealthy through uh, its energy, um, money that's made from energy, has been able to export its particular brand of Islam around the world. Many of the madrasas where extremists are inculcated in their in a certain brand of Islam, it's, it's through Saudi-funded um, madrasas. Um, and that's the case, whether we're talking Pakistan, um, elsewhere in the Gulf, even in Thailand, where I, where I lived or Indonesia. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. And this Wahhabi brand of Islam 
basically rejects the idea that Christians and Muslims can coexist in society, right? In Saudi Arabia, it's illegal. You can't be you can't be a Christian. They'll throw you in jail if you convert. Are there churches in in Saudi Arabia or underground? Church? How how does that work for? Yeah, they're for they're, they're under. Who go and work there for a few months or a year or two? Yeah, the uh, the churches are are basically underground or have to be done through the official endorsement of a Western nation that has a diplomatic presence there, right? So, from what I understand, um, I think that I think it's the French embassy has a church there. I, I could be misspeaking. Several of the Western European countries that are historically Catholic, they have a they have a church that the Saudi Arabian Arabian government has allowed them to maintain. But yeah, I mean, if, if you were an American missionary and wanted to go start a church in Saudi Arabia, it would be against the law. Wow. You just point to some of this extremism as, as, it, as, you, as it is, um, and it's Sharia law, uh, which is one of the things that are attached to this uh, Islam faith and ideology. And you're talking about one persecuted person, actually a quote from a religious scholar, the Sharia creates a mindset of anti-Christian discrimination, which individuals may put into practice with greater or lesser attention to the limits set out set out in the Sharia. Then there's another section, and this is worth quoting, and you document her case in the book, um, Asia Bibi, I believe she was a, a persecuted Christian Catholic and she survived the uh, Pakistan's blasphemy laws, which we can talk about. Here, here's what she says. Even though we are not considered a threat, we aren't respected. We have to state our religion on our identification papers, and our passport has a different color, black. Before anyone opens it, they already know we are Christians. It's as if we have a mask in the middle of our faces and in Pakistan, this mask is not an asset, and so on. So they're second-class citizens. Like yes. I thought, we, we've moved on from that here in America. Yeah. So in Pakistan, the more extreme form of Islam became more embedded in their laws. Uh, beginning in the 70s and 80s, there was a dictator um, that, that ruled the country, their military dictator in the 80s, who sort of welcomed in a lot of the Saudi religious influence. Um, the blasphemy law is perhaps the most egregious example of this, um, and it was used against Asia Bibi. Uh, her case is, is um, well, probably well known to some listeners because it did attract so much international media attention, but it was all over um, some sort of simple, I think it derived originally from some sort of simple land dispute in her village in Pakistan. And uh, other members of the community who are Muslim basically uh, accused her wrongly of having uh, committed blasphemy. And the sentence for blasphemy in Pakistan is death. She was actually sentenced to death. One of the witnesses that uh, made claims against her, even though uh, the witness, sort of like Christ, many of the witnesses, their stories uh, didn't correlate. Um, but the judge even said, well, this man has a haji beard. If you have a, if you have a long beard in, in Islamic society, it's, a, it's viewed as a, a sign of respect and, and religious piety. Uh, the judge even said he has a long beard so we can believe his story which it's just amazing. But um, yeah, Bibi was on death row. The only thing that saved her really was the international media attention, including praise be God, praise be to God, um, Pope Benedict the 16th, who mentioned her um, publicly in Rome at the time. Uh, but yes, it, it took a long time and a lot of effort, but eventually she was cleared of the charges um, and was able to be uh, repatriated to Canada. But it took a tremendous amount of international attention and work to get that done. And you think about the many thousands more Pakistani Christians that 
are suffering that every day and have no one to advocate for them. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My guest is Casey Chalk, author of The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands. It's from Sophia Institute Press. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Your book covers events of recent years. It's prior to the fall of Kabul and Afghanistan, which I'd like to get your opinion on in a moment. What took you to Thailand, or can you say, your career took you there, clearly, and then you started filing stories for a Catholic newspaper, and this, of course, ultimately led to your book, The Persecuted. That's right. Yeah. So I was doing a, tra- a lot of my professional background is in translation. Uh, I, uh, I, my, my scores have dropped quite a bit, but I originally spoke uh, uh, Dari, or, uh, which is a brand of Persian spoken in Afghanistan. That's why I went to Afghanistan. Um, so yeah, I was managing a team of uh, translators for a various number of Southeast Asian languages. Our interaction with the Pakistani um, Christian asylum seeker community in Bangkok was originally based solely on the fact that these were people I was meeting at uh, our local Catholic parish and developing relationships with them. The parish is very international. It has a large ministry devoted towards helping these uh, these vulnerable um, Pakistanis. There's between somewhere between five to 10,000 of these people in the city. Um, not all of them are Catholic. Many of them go to evangelical churches as well, but uh, they need a lot of assistance. Many of them spent practically or all of their life savings to fly to Thailand seeking refugee status. And uh, they, they don't have living arrangements. A lot of them, their kids don't go to school for years. They're hounded by the Thai authorities because they come on a, a 30-day visa, tourist visa. Uh, Thailand's economy is based uh, uh, very largely on tourism, which is how they were able to get into the country in the first place. Um, but once that visa expires, the Thais basically will round them up and throw them into uh, detention centers where they're treated horribly. That's very uh, terrible conditions that are very unsanitary. And then the Thais try to get as much out of them as they can. Usually, um, they're able to extract money through uh, Western donors who are willing to sort of sponsor these uh, Christian um, Pakistanis. And that's that's very much the story uh, of my wife and our and our family helping them is going to visit them into detention centers, bringing them food and other medical necessities. And, uh, and this just going on for months and years. Well, you document a lot of this and the horrible atrocities and um, mayhem uh, visited upon Christians and Catholics in these lands. And are they being pushed out of these countries? Is that, is that what's been squeezed out of these Muslim majority countries? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the persecuted tells the story in particular of two Pakistani Catholic families, um, the uh, the Williams and the D'Souza's, um, both of them very devout Catholics. Um, I would classify them as probably middle class or lower middle class in Pakistani society in Karachi, the, very, the largest city in the country. 
much larger than New York City. Um, and uh, both targeted by Muslim extremists because of their Christian faith. Um, and I, as I as I discussed in the persecuted, it starts with some harassment, calls to convert. When these families refuse to convert over time, the harassment becomes uh, more explicit, more threatening. Um, physical assaults are made upon them. Um, with Wilson's family, uh, two of his nieces were briefly abducted by Muslim extremists, and they set them on fire. and uh, And they fled to Bangkok, where uh, wow. I was able to see the burn marks on their torsos that will be with them the rest of their lives. That is just shocking. And there are, I'm sure, many, many cases like that out there. 9-11 was a major turning point in what's happening in this whole dynamic, Muslim versus the you know, Western culture. Um, how did that shake things up? Yeah, it, it did have a tremendous impact that I think most Westerners are, are not um, aware of. So after 9-11, the U.S. and NATO allies uh, retaliated against the Taliban. I don't make any judgment upon the, the justness or the, uh, the, the need to do that. But regardless of whether it was the right thing to do, by removing the Taliban from power, many of them ended up fleeing into Pakistan, which is the reason why part of the reason why Muslim extremism has become more of a problem there. Thousands of these extremist Muslims um, who had been running the country in the late 90s fled into Pakistan and set up shop in major cities like Quetta, Peshawar, Karachi, Lahore. Um, but even beyond that, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and other uh, Western military interventions, places like Libya uh, in 2011, and even in Syria, um, all of these actions are viewed um, with a particular lens by um, Muslims in the Middle East and South Asia, and certainly the extremist Muslims. They view any of these military attacks as an assault on Dar al-Islam, the land of Islam. Um, and that's uh, this, this is a, a, a sanctified part of the world in their mind. So any kind of Western military intervention is viewed uh, very negatively um, as, a, as an assault on their way of life, regardless of whether or not we're killing terrorists or innocent civilians. They oftentimes don't make any difference between that and it leads many of these Muslims and, and certainly the extremists to want to retaliate. And if they don't have Americans in front of them, then Christian minority community, uh, members of the Christian minority community will do just as well. So much of the antagonism towards um, these vulnerable Christian populations in Syria and Iraq and Pakistan is uh, they're just they're looking for an outlet and they see these Christians. And so they uh, they basically view them as one and the same with the West and they lash out. Yeah, so they're collateral damage, uh, which is an understatement, and soft targets. So in some sense, an unintended consequence of our military intervention, right or wrong. And of course, we had the um, abrupt uh, exit out of Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul and Afghanistan. How does that leave things now? Well, I know that there was a very small Christian population in Afghanistan. I think that it grown through various missionary efforts over the last 20 years. Even then, it had to be done underground uh, because Islam is the official religion of Afghanistan uh, prior to the Taliban under the, the, the government of Afghanistan and Hamid Karzai when he was the president and, um, and then Ashraf Ghani. Um, but the, I know that several thousand of these Christian Afghans have had to be um, uh, repatriated and are now living in other countries as uh, you know, uh, very gracious Christian donors in the West are trying to help them to start a new life. Um, so certainly Afghanistan, um, well, it, it was, it's never really been hospitable towards Christians, but it will be 
uh, even less so under a Taliban rule. And uh, yeah, we'll see we'll see what the effects are for um, for Pakistan as well, given the fact that now there is a official endorsement of this more extremist uh, Diobandi school of Islam um, being uh, being you know practiced and uh, implemented in their laws in Afghanistan. In your book, it seems to me you're sounding some kind of a warning, even a subtle warning, perhaps, for the West. Is there anything we need to fear and know here and should be aware about? Yeah, I uh, I do have concerns about in- the increased um, immigration of Muslim populations into the West. Um, I, not that I, I think that it, it necessarily needs to stop entirely. I think that Western countries, to their credit, have always been very sympathetic towards the needs of um, refugees and asylum seekers and people who are who are fleeing all kinds of terrible um, uh, military or, or economic um, or, or political uh, you know problems in their native lands. But I do think that nations need to be a little bit more careful and discerning about who they're letting in and who they're prioritizing. Um, in particular, Christian communities in, in these Muslim lands, they're the most vulnerable and, uh, and exploited populations. And, mm. uh, you know, I, when I, I hope that when Western countries think about who they're going to allow to come into the United States and become citizens, I, I hope that they think first of um, these Christian minority communities in places like Pakistan and, and Syria and Iraq, because they're the ones who uh, are the most deeply threatened and their way of life is the most deeply threatened. Yeah, because you mentioned that in your book, that the refugee status for these persecuted Christians, while they're designated as refugees, they don't easily qualify for passports and exit permits. It, it, it's compared to other groups who seem to have a much easier time, especially today. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, and this not just a problem in the United States, right? Look what happened um, with with the crisis in uh, in in Syria, where you know Angela Merkel of Germany basically allowed in a million people from yeah. uh, you know from South Asia and the Middle East. Um, I mean, my goodness, if the United States said we were going to allow one million uh, vulnerable Christians from Muslim countries, and I mean. <laughs> That would be that would be a lot of the Christians that are suffering in these countries. Um, yeah. I mean, it would be it would be a remarkable thing. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's very difficult for these Christians. One because it's very it's it's near impossible to get refugee status. Most of the Christians I met, their refugee applications had been denied by the UN, and then uh, um, even when they reapplied, uh, it, that that was also denied. So then they're stuck. But even if they are able to get that that golden ticket with refugee status, only about one percent of refugees are actually repatriated annually. So even if a Christian who had fled persecution in Pakistan was able to get refugee status uh, in Bangkok, uh, he or she might not be repatriated for 10 or 20 years. And also, um, it should be noted, there are issues in in, in Africa too, in some African nations, there's um, persecution uh, waged by extremist Islam groups. Oh yeah, all over North Africa and even into Western Africa, there are, um, and some of this also has to do with the impact of um, Western intervention. When the Libyan government fell, a lot of the weapons that the Gaddafi regime had held uh, for many years um, went on the black market. Yeah. And they went into the hands of uh, criminal groups and extremist groups all over the, the Sahel um, and have uh, yeah, basically been used to attack Christian villages all over West Africa. You know, it, when you when you think about it, there's a certain naivety, and I guess it's the politically correct culture we live in that um, 
why can't we all get along sort of thing? And I mean, that's that's fine. But if if groups come into your country, immigrate, and we have to be a welcoming country, we recognize that, but they have to fall in line with the American way of doing things and our law and order and our civil society. You can't create sub-societies. None of us can come from abroad and <clears throat> recreate your own nation and live in some kind of a vacuum. And that's that sort of seems to me that's what goes on with some of these extremist Islam groups to try to set up their own societies within the bigger world around them. Oh, yes. I think this is a constant problem. Um, certainly in the US, I've heard a lot of and heard and read a lot of stories about the UK with many of these Muslim communities that have not assimilated even after multiple generations, even with many of the Afghan um, refugees that uh, were hurried out of the country. Um, when the Taliban took over Kabul a couple months ago, um, it, I understand the U.S. government, you know, had made promises to many of these people and they had collaborated with the U.S. government, the U.S. military during the long presence there and, and felt, a, you know, a need to take care of these people. But many of them, their culture is very different. I've heard stories about many of the uh, Afghans who have been issued the special issuance visa um, who, uh, you know, the, they basically demand that the, the women... Um, are not allowed to represent themselves. They have to be represented by an Afghan male. They can't be um, communicating with uh, American female government employees who want to ask them questions about the visa process. I even heard one particular story about a um, an, an Afghan man who uh, had <laughs> had been able to sneak over not only his first wife, but his second and third. Um, and his third wife was 14 years old. Wow. Um, so yeah, th that culture... Or that subculture in Afghanistan is something that, yeah, I think a lot of Americans would be surprised to hear um, is, uh, yeah, increasingly present in our nation. When you see all the instability in the world, what we're going through, COVID and um, a world flooded with debt, social problems, um, refugees crossing borders, terrible injustices, um, amongst many different communities, all the events you've described in your book, the persecuted. How do you see the immediate future? I think in many ways it's grim because um, the governments of these countries, and like as I mentioned, it's it's the Islam is written into the law, and the law itself is used as a coercive tool against these Christian populations. Now that said, there are many things that uh, Christians in the West and uh, and even non Christians who care about the plight of you know, this cri uh, people who are suffering from this crisis, things they can do. Certainly we can pray. And I, and I, uh, I, and I don't want to downplay that. I think sometimes we say, oh yes, of course we'll pray. But prayer really, uh, I, I was able to, to witness myself really can have a tremendous impact on the lives of these vulnerable communities. And uh, God has come through in many respects for my Pakistani Christian friends as, um, as they've tried to rebuild their lives, whether in Thailand or in other places, besides uh, prayer, Certainly financial support. There are many fantastic uh, organizations in the West, um, the Knights of Columbus, the uh, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and even Protestant organizations like the Barnabas Fund all have um, uh, easy and very effective ways for Westerners to get um, money and other kinds of you know, resources into the hands of these vulnerable Christian communities. Um, I love the Barnabas Fund in particular because they they uh, they have a magazine that comes to telling the stories of the individual people and families and communities that that you're helping. Um, so I think that's that's tremendous. Politically, I think there are also things that um, that listeners and readers of the book can do. 
we can petition our local politicians. That's what my wife and I did when we came back to the States. We started contacting our local representative. Thank God for Representative Chris Smith from New Jersey. I don't live oh, in Chris, New Jersey. Yeah, but I've met him a few times. He's terrific. Yeah, he has advocated on behalf of these very families that I talk about in the persecuted. He's mentioned them during a congressional uh, subcommittee hearing. Um, and uh, we're in, we, we continue to try to get traction to raise awareness regarding these stories. So I encourage all listeners and, and readers of the persecuted to, you know, to write their local representative, to get on the phone, you know, write letters to the editor, um, make their voice assert that this is something they care about. The name of your book is The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands, published by Sophia Institute Press, a great read. Casey Chalk, thank you for being on my show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate you having me on. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.